large public gatherings will remain banned until September. Something was needed, and I just happened to spark it over a glass of red wine. I had an opportunity and the time and the resource and some contacts, and I took a punt. Before the pandemic, in Britain, live music was a booming billion-pound industry. We have a responsibility as industry leaders to get this industry into a better place than when we started in it and to leave a legacy of opportunity for the next generation. And if there is anything that we have a responsibility to do as business leaders, that's got to be the optimum. Many will be waiting and watching to see if British festivals can indeed flourish again. Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the revolutionary event crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So if you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. Throughout the past two years, a handful of people have taken the events industry by the scruff of the neck to get it back to its very best. One of those people is Rick Stainton. As a founder of the incredible creative agency Smile, Rick has decades of experience in creating live events and has worked with the likes of Rolls-Royce, Samsung, Red Bull, Facebook and many more. But in 2020, he co-founded One Industry, One Voice. This helped coordinate the collective industry response to the COVID pandemic and has done some fantastic work. Rick has also been a big supporter of our new event crowd course and is one of the main expert lecturers who has dedicated their own time to make it the very best events course out there. Here is the eventful life of Mr. Rick Stainton. Rick, welcome to the show, buddy. Good to be here. Yeah, mate. Looking forward to this, as per usual. Dodge, it's a pleasure. <laughs> um, let's get cracking. How did you get into the events industry? So, I mean, effectively, I went to university. Um, Unfortunately, broke my neck when I was the age of 20. I'd got a year off from the university to recover, to learn to walk again. And uh, organised... Hold on a minute, hold on. You, you broke your neck. Yeah, I wouldn't let's recommend not, let's it. Let's not skip over that. How did you break your neck? I've, I fell off a promenade in Portsmouth. I was leaning on a, on a balustrade in the dark. I was sober. I was driving my girlfriend home at the time. And um, I just leant on the balcony uh, on the, and missed the balustrade and fell 30 feet, fell on my head, helicoptered off the beach. I wouldn't uh, recommend it. You are joking me. Yeah, yeah. At the age of 21? Age of twenty, yeah, fitted with one of those halo jackets. They bolt into your skull while you're alive, so that they, uh, when you're awake, so that you, uh, you sort of mo- immobilise the neck. Oh my God! And then, um, how yeah. big was the fall? About thirty feet. Yeah, fell onto a nice little scar on the top of my head, and uh, had a little helicopter ride to good old uh, Duke of Cornwall Spinal Unit in Salisbury Hospital. We were amazing, and I thought oh, there were sixty people in the unit that year, and I was the only one that walked out. Um, wow! Why did they say? What did they say to you? When you- well, I wasn't told, but my parents were told that. I wouldn't walk again. I wasn't told, so I presume it was all going to be all right. And then after three or four months of physio with, you know, paralyzed from the neck down, one day when they're sort of working on your hands and stuff and say, focus on your hand while they're mm, moving it, yeah. my my sort of finger slightly moved. And then very slowly over weeks, it started to creep back onto on, onto the body. But I'm still sort of numb on one side on my left of my body. And, right? and sl- I can't even push down an aerosol can on my right hand, so I'm still a bit weak on the right. But... Compared to everyone else, I was incredibly lucky and, uh, you know, they did an amazing job in the smile and the unit. So what year was this? 1994. 94. And what were you, st- were you at university then? Yeah, university, just just on my second year. 
So, so did you go back into your third year? or No, no, I was due to go to France uh, for a year out because I did European studies. Um, and, you know, the vice chancellor very gratefully gave me a year off to recover. And so, yeah, I had spare time and was bumbling around with this big cage on my head. And, and, and a lot of my mates were DJs and music uh, musicians doing gigs, uh, student unions, as you well know. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, very badly, unlike you, didn't make any money out of it. But uh, <laughs> But organized a few gigs and I just got the buzz of, of, of putting some effort in and seeing the result and smiling people's faces. Yeah, it's not a better feeling that, is there? No, it's what more do you want to dedicate your career to, yeah. right? Yeah. So where did you start throwing the parties then? In your final year or if, when you come back? No, in, in, what in, uni were you at? At Royal Holloway, University of London. Okay. Brilliant university just outside Egham. You know, you've got Windsor a couple, couple of miles away. You've got Ascot, you've got Wentworth. So if you're a sporting fan, that's pretty, pretty, pretty yeah. good. Um, so yeah, so organized student union nights and then we went around, did a few gigs around a few universities. Um, in conjunction with the one with Lakota from Bristol, yeah. and we did uh, something. Uh, Great club, that one. That yeah, yeah, yeah. They club. brought all the visuals down and stuff. We did something at the Adrenaline Village from Battersea. Yeah. Um, lost a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> had a lot of fun. I <laughs> love your honesty. And yeah, it was. It was uh, my, my my grandparents. I don't think I still paid them off, but uh, it, it got it got the buzz. And once you get yeah. the buzz, uh, you think, well, could this be a job? Yeah. And then what was the next step from there then? Were you obviously, how, how old were you when you were throwing these parties? Uh, 21, 22, yeah. 23. And then basically, you know, I've lost the money. I was set up by the Prince's Trust yeah. um, and, and they gave me a loan. And, and unfortunately it didn't go because I didn't have a clue about spreadsheets, balance sheets, process, yeah. communication, marketing. I just was doing it for fun. Yeah. And that only gets so, so far really. Yeah. So I went and wanted to learn. So okay. I went to an event company uh, in Hertfordshire, local to me then, and learned about you know teamwork and, and and planning and process and um and then moved to a bigger agency one of the biggest ones um at the time in milton Keynes, and learned about marketing and creating and okay. commercial brands and, and 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 how to understand um what clients really needed rather than what they thought they needed and 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 be a bit more consultant and but i always had a buzz to set up again mm. now i'd bought bought that sort of experience and a bit more sort of credibility to to setting up again mm. and what was your next step there then you obviously went off to working for someone was there a point you're thinking hold on i can do this myself uh, i think it was always in me i mean after you've been through what i'd been through you have a sort of inner sense of of, of confidence and that the, you know you anything can be is possible yeah. um if you learn to walk again so if anything's possible then why not um give it a go myself again having built up five six seven years of experience in the industry so i think that entrepreneur buzz was always in there mm. And 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 the the guy that I used a lot as a production technical partner, Matt Margotson, who ran a little agency called Smile Productions, uh, was brilliant creatively, very amenable, but did a lot of work for other agencies. Whereas my experience was direct with brands. Yeah. So we merged together. Where I had the creativity and the industry contacts, and 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 he had the technical back end at Acumen, and we created an agency that had both, which was quite rare back then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what year are we talking? Two thousand and four. Two thousand and four. Yeah. So you created uh, Smile Creative Agency back then. Yeah. And you're still going now? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, tell, we're, we're tell 18, 17, more, 18 Tell years. me a little bit about that, about that journey when you first started. Do you have investment? Did anyone backing you? Did you have to go and find money? Tell me a bit about that start. No, my wife and I agreed that we'd give it a go and we lived off, I think I remortgaged three times. I lived off two credit cards, two or three bank loans. And back then that was quite easy to get. And um, yeah, I didn't have an income for almost a year. Um, it got to the point probably within a year where if there was no income coming in, it would have all gone tits. Um, but it didn't, and we started to get a few gigs in, and you know the balance between Matt and Smile, 
from a production technical perspective and me with a few people that we started to employ creating the experiences was a, was a good marriage because we could offer a bit more of an integrated solution which clients liked and we won our first gig which was bizarrely Rolls-Royce Motor Cars Centenary Celebration. As your first gig? Yeah, down at the proper corporate one, yeah. <laughs> so it was 2004, it was their centenary. They just also just launched the Phantom. BMW had bought them, launched the new Phantom car, and they were launching their Goodwood factory. So just to break this down for, for the listeners, tell me what your role is by getting that gig, that Rolls-Royce gig. My what, personal role? Yeah, what was your personal role? What well, was your company's role? Explain how the finances work. Do okay. you charge them a fee to get, for you to go and put on the event for them and rebrand or sort of brand the event for them? What do you do? All right, so they give us a brief saying we've got um, well, it was sort of we've got a centenary celebration. This is the brief we want to do it at Goodwood to showcase the new factory. We've got a budget of X, and the objectives are X, Y, and Z to deliver an amazing experience with showcasing the history of the last hundred years. We had a big cavalcade of lots of different cars over the years. We had lots of celebs and and, and owners come to the. About five six hundred people in, in, in the courtyard of so we created a, a very rolls-royce-esque looking environment we created a big stage where the cars would come on and and, and with a light and sound show mm. um and our role was to deliver create the whole experience frankly mm. from the infrastructure create some of the storyboarding create the visuals get the cars together with all the different dealers around the world um so they gave us a budget and we put together a proposal with our ideas with a budget attached to that almost to the point of line by line item yeah and then obviously the, you know the md the board of rolls royce considered whether it was on brand on story was feasible the budget looked credible and they in a pitch process a competitive pitch and yeah. um, we were appointed wow 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 so back then were there a lot less agencies than they are now uh, I'm not sure if I got the exact stats, but no, I, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, obviously, we were a, we were a boutique agency. We'd probably charge less than yeah. a lot of others. Well, um, just to get the deal. Yeah, I don't know if we yeah. made much money on the deal. It was. It, it didn't was, matter. It didn't matter. Put it, it on the portfolio. It, well, exactly. I mean, yeah. not better case study. The biggest, most well-known, probably UK motor brand in the world with yeah. a heritage of 100 years, um, with lots of different elements of corporate, creative, design, technology, storytelling, um, a nice high-profile audience. Um, and you know effectively yeah we, we delivered it for, for probably just to get it on the books mm. back then did you want to build an empire no we, we we had a very clear um mission to 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 be the number one creative agency in the uk and whether that meant that we stayed at 10 or whether that meant we were had hundreds was sort of secondary yeah. we just want to do the best possible projects with the most creative outputs to have that reputation right. it's all about being the best and getting the yeah. re best reputation so there was no mission to get to x to y to z we just wanted to consistently grow and from growth self sort of self the byproduct of that would have to be more resource would have to be bigger premises would have to be more staff more elements so it was all about getting the bigger gigs, seeing the big boys back then. I mean, yeah, there are a lot more agencies now than there were back then, but there was always these sort of four or five big boys that who we aspired the, who to. Were the, who were the big guns back then? Do you remember? Oh, it'd be, it'd be the likes of probably Imagination, Jack Morton, TRO, you know, those sort of companies. And they were, were the big London creative agencies, right? They're they? big and global. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, they still are, you know, some, so, you know, they've got massive, um, you know, hundred, hundreds of people turning over tens of millions and doing, they were always the ones doing the big gigs. And we mm. wanted to be playing in that field because mm. we had aspirations to do the biggest, not to the biggest, but probably the biggest profile or the most creative. Sometimes the smallest gigs can be the, some of the most exciting. It wasn't yeah. so much about size from a gig. It was about profile and project and reputation mm. to deliver excellence. Mm. So that was our aspiration. Um, I mean, we were very fortunate. You know, we grew really well from sort of three to five to eight million up to the recession of 2007, eight, nine. Mm. 
Then we went back down again. We BlackBerry was our massive client back then. We launched the Pearl and all that. Remember that stuff? Yeah, yeah. I do. I do. We launched, yeah. That was our big client. But unfortunately, that was 40, 50% of our client base, one, yeah. one, one client. And that taught us a big lesson when they decided to stop doing mm. smartphones. How did, you, how did you feel about the whole tender process? You know that you're going in, you're putting a tender in for BlackBerry, and you know there's five other agencies mm. going for it. How do you feel about that? Because you can put a hell of a lot of work into yeah. a tender process oh, yeah. and maybe not win it. Yeah, and pitches cost a fortune. Some pitches cost tens of thousands of pounds and you you have a probability analysis. You know, you basically look at your case study, your expertise. You look at who else is pitching if you can. Is there an incumbent relationship? How well you know the client? How well you know the brand? Um, you look at... Um, you really look at whether you feel that you can create something that no one else can because of insight or knowledge or experience within the industry. Um, you also got to trust as well. It's always a risk, but you got to trust in your own creative juices and that you can offer something different because your team will be different to anyone else's team yeah. and they'll have different experience and backgrounds and, and, and views on things. Um, you know, if some, some clients may put together a, a two or three agency roster and that's that's great and you, you pitch against them quite often or sometimes you you don't have to pitch because you're the right agency and they know that sometimes there's that pitches that are eight seven eight nine ten agencies and we pretty much steer away from those because yeah. i don't think they're particularly helpful to the client and a lot of agencies will also a certain acumen not feel that's a, a diligent procurement process because yeah. um, it gets very subjective yeah um so yeah somewhere between sort of three and four agencies pitching is sort of the norm but more and more often what you aim for is to be the number one agency, either on a roster exclusively or semi-retained as a consultant, or you are not pigeonholed, but you are you are deemed to be the expert in a certain type. So there might be two or three agencies. One's experiential. One might be the storyteller. One might be a, a more of a, um, a logistical expert. You don't know. Obviously, what you want to be is you want to be the preferred agency for all of that. Um, so it's not easy, but it's the, the, the status that we're in now as an agency, on, unlike marketing or, or PR agencies that put more mature market maybe and on, on long-term retainers. Mm -hmm. But when you get to a global relationship, yeah. that's when it becomes really quite interesting because when you get to a global position, whether it's you know the, the tech guys in San Fran or something like Samsung in South Korea that we, we have relationships with, they have an understanding so deep of what we're about and we have an understanding so deep of what their yeah. expectations are their client expectations are their audience expectations their product lines yeah. we're so in depth with them there's quite a barrier to entry yeah and obviously that plays both ways if you yeah. suddenly get an opportunity to pitch for a client where there's someone already in that position mm. then you've got to be very wary of whether you're really going to add value mm. whereas conversely if you've developed that relationship over years you are in a very strong position because you probably are the best agency mm. to deliver it as long as you stay current and on it and move with their dynamic commercial requirements mm. and so on. The thing at Smile, me and Matt have always had this thing called positive paranoia, where we're very positive about our achievements, yeah. our awards, our growth, but also every morning for years and years, to this day, paranoid that we'll get complacent. That someone that they'll, will they'll catch take the up, contract. We'll, we'll rest in our laurels yeah. uh, with their client relationship, yeah. with our staff relationships, or just generally with the Smile. Keeps so you on your toes, right? Positive paranoia is a really, mm. really great thing. It's something I've, I've believed in for a long time. Mm. How important is that relationship with that individual person who signs it all off? So some, give me, just give me an example. You don't have yeah. to give me exactly, but give no. me an example of a deal with one of the big guns, so with yeah. BlackBerry. Would that be a five million pound deal every year or whatever it may be, one million pound yeah. deal for 500 grand? And how long would you sign that contract for? Just the one gig. Just the one gig. Yeah. And then you would make that contract, you'd make it such a good gig that they'd want to come back again. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, relationships aren't about individual projects. Relationships are about looking forward to the year or the plan for the market. You know, what, how they're going to incentivize their staff, look after them, deliver them to the new strategies, the new products they've got to go out and market, sell, or internal issues. And you plan that out or should plan that out with a strong relationship with the client. Conversely, you sit down if you're a good enough creative agency rather than a tactical event agency, you're talking about the longer term mission for the year, the pipeline of things they're going to activate at, whether it's something like Mobile World Congress or CES in the States yeah. or at the Welcome economic forum or their own individual product launches or conferences or partner events mm. and you sort of forecast that with them so it doesn't become one gig one project it becomes more of a longer term partnership with a campaign element in oh, mind okay. or at least a pro pro project progression of their marketing plan and you become a, a partner yeah, rather okay. than a supplier yeah okay and that obviously gives longevity because they don't want to change, to. surely, if no. they build up a relationship with you. And, and it gets to a point where procurement agree a roster, as I say, of two or three agencies with different core disciplines. And often you don't necessarily pitch externally, mm. you pitch internally. Mm. So that you pitch a concept to a client that's only you've been given that pitch. Mm. And as long as you get it spot on and right, you're then appointed, mm. rather than in a competitive way where they're still looking at different agencies. Yeah. And that's the progression of sort of certain tactical reactionary relationships to more strategic, commercial and more international yeah. relationships. Just going back to your BlackBerry, deal there mm. i remember you saying that you had a lot of eggs in one basket mm. or essentially what, what what learning curve do you have from that it's not a good idea no. um uh, you need to and it's not our gear for not a good idea for a number of reasons you know staff want variety yeah. we all want variety yeah. of, of cultures of brands of different genres that we work in but also different industries over time thrive and fall you know i mean let's look at for example the automotive sector which has gone a huge amount of disruption in the last three or four years obviously with the progression of of fossil fuels being less attractive and the EV progression, they're right in a sort of a- What's EV? Electric vehicle. Yep. So so they're, they're basically in a bit of a weird state of flux at the moment where Tesla's still the marching them and then the rest of them pretty much on catch up. Yeah. Um, and there's been a real hold of, of research and development catching up with, with the leader in the marketplace. Um, you look at the COVID situation where some industries have absolutely been decimated, whereas the NASDAQ's at an all-time high yeah. because tech firms and the employment yeah, of digital and so on. So pharma, pretty steady, you know, so in the, in the middle of it. So you've got different industries that different macro market forces will develop over time and they have peaks and troughs. Mm. You've got a spread of industries. You're not only so you've got a, a learning from those different yeah. industries of how they work, their cultures, their different you know issues, challenges, opportunities. That is a melting pot of experience you can use on any next project, whichever industry is mm. in. So you're learning from the variety. Your team are learning from the variety. Yeah. And you can take elements of what you've used in one industry with one specific nuances, whether it's the technical, the logistical, the global element of it yeah. the international element of it the type of audiences you're targeting the type of venues you're working at whatever it might be and translate that into a real belty pop experience for the next gig mm. if you're stuck in perhaps one industry and just the expert in that then yes you have a, perhaps a barrier to entry of people taking that business away from you but you're perhaps missing out on a wider market yeah. and experience to, to, to develop you know benefit of all your clients mm. in the future so how does your business model work how does it work? Very well, I'm happy to say. Yes, it does. Um, we'll, we'll move into that in a bit. Yeah, but I sure. want to know, like, from there, you and your you and your friend set up this business. Yeah. You got ten staff. You were probably working your plums off yeah. for years and years yeah. and years. How long did it take? How many years did it take to you? You really knew that you broke the back out back of the business. Yeah, well, there's two answers to that. I mean, ultimately, we were very conscious of building on that integrated model where you've got creative and design and delivery married with technical expertise, which was quite, as I say, rare at the start. And the, the technical time. expertise, is that the event side of? That's AV, that's kit, yes. that's flight boxes, power distribution, set design. And actual... you, did you go and own all that or were yeah. you sub? 
You no, two owning that's all what that. Matt's side yeah, of it okay. was. He owned kits. You know, okay. he had a warehouse, and so we our model has been built on that basis of the more skill set we have internally yeah. that can integrate and be more streamlined, it benefits from quality control. One stop shop. It, well, I'm wary of that word, but mm. it's more about sort of more the key disciplines that are so interlinked working together rather than being outsourced with one agency at the top. Yeah. Because not only obviously from an internal perspective, you you keep more of the revenue within your business, but you've got quality control there. You've got flexibility of understanding how they work better together the mm. technical to the constant the, the storytelling um the production delivery to the guest experience from logistics so now we've built up over time from that just sort of creative production through to the technical production mm. we have in-house you know a paint workshop a set construction mm. workshop broadcast studios streaming studios vidity editing I mean, all in-house all in-house moving image moving image does on 150 videos a year and, and obviously now a lot of streaming and stuff We've got the obviously the technical and the, the workshop, as I say, from set construction. We have storytelling, creative comms, in, yeah. in, in, in so strategically we can sit in front of any C-suite director at any brand level and have people that can talk their language Brilliant. about marketing strategies, storytelling. Absolute empire here. Yeah, and you've got logistics as yeah. well, which again historically logistics may well been a standalone agency, which just does the management of people registration yeah, people yeah, coming yeah. to event that's in-house as well so you're covering a lot of the integrated requirements to deliver an experience yeah it's all about the experience yeah so that's basically been the business model and we've bolted it on but it got to a point where we didn't have it all in-house we're outsourcing it yeah. more and more and it got to the point why are we outsourcing this when we could then bring it in-house as long you can't be all things to all men yeah. but if they're working together and better for the benefit of the client mm. then the client sees the rationale for it did you ever go and get investment on your journey nope no so you've built it all from scratch up until 2018, when we sold a 50, 51% stake to private equity in 2018. But up until that point, that Matt right? and I had so you 80 had, odd percent of the shareholding. So you had 14 years of building this business up? Yep. So tell me, when did you realize, what year did you realize you broke the back of this business model? Um, I think when we got to that magic 10 million turnover, which must have been around 2013, when we won Agency of the Year across three different Sort of, I think it was CNIT, Event Magazine, and Evcom, and so this we've is never nine. Done this is before. nine years in. Yeah, and I thought okay. we've we've got a, a really balanced, increasingly balanced client base. The integrated model is working. We're getting industry recognition, and now we're not a a, a company that's daily worrying about the wages, yeah. weekly worrying about the rent, monthly worrying about cash flow. We're still focused on it, yeah. but we weren't so much worrying about it. It was more about managing the problems that come from growth. Mm which are very exciting, they're success problems. And when you start worrying about day-to-day -day and more about planning and success problems, that's when you start getting that pivot of this can be quite an interesting growth value yeah. business yeah. rather than a lifestyle business. Yeah. No, Neither are wrong or right. Yeah. It depends what the entrepreneur or whatever wants to focus on. Yeah. But Matt and I were always about the, the former yeah. and, and wanting to build something up that had real value mm. to the industry, real reputation, real scale, but also the reputation of quality. And you need some sort of scale for that sometimes. Mm. Give me an example of a real exciting event that you work on. Uh, an event that you, you wake up in the morning, the spring year step. Well, there's, 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 I mean. Give me some uh, examples uh, of some events you've done. Okay, so, I mean, the variety, I'll give you three examples of core variety. You've got the opening ceremony of the Ryder Cup in one angle, which has got over half a billion TV audience across the world. Third most watched, I think, ceremony in the world. 40,000 on in front of you on a stage that's almost 100 meters wide. And you're delivering one of the biggest sporting events that's so exciting, obviously, Europe against America. And we did that in Europe 2010-14. Then in, in, in the same year, perhaps, as doing that in 2018 in Paris, we were delivering Facebook's main activation at the World Economic Forum in Davos. 
um, with a three-tiered sort of story minus structure. Minus 20 degrees. Minus 20 degrees in Switzerland <laughs> um, in a really sustainable way. And then at the same time, um, you're delivering um, something like uh, Stormzy on stage in the pontoon on the Thames um, for launching 5G for EE yeah. um, with barges going past and it being streamed across all their stores at the same time as well. So you've got sort of an experiential activation, you've got quite a serious business yeah. message and you've got a sporting activation. And that for us is the essence of Smile, which is quite unique to be experts in all those different types of mm. genres. Mm. Again, deploying the same integrated model across all of them. Yeah. So from so from there, from 2013, when you knew you broke the back of it, did you have any mentors on this journey at all, or were you just learning off the cuff? It's a great question. I mean, me and Matt mentored each other because we've we've got four four main people at Smile. We've got Dom, who's my first employee, um, and now the MD. We've got Andrew, who's the best technical director in the country and production guy. You've got Matt, who's a creative, innovative, mad genius. And you've got myself, who does a bit of, sort of the commercial strategy client sort of stuff. So we've got four squares. And we yeah. all mentored each other. We were very different, but we worked together because we didn't overlap conflict. Yeah. But we did reach out externally to a several a few people that sort of became sort of not one particular sort of became non-exec, guy called David Hornby, that was the commercial director at Visit London at the time. And he sort of understood how to manage roles and responsibilities at a high level and get the best out of, yeah. of, of, of a director roles that were sort of making up, frankly, as we went along in such a fast-paced growth yeah. element. Um, and then when we got to sort of the private equities side, I guess, more recently, we needed more grown-ups at the board level. Mm. We needed to have a bigger picture understanding mm. of growth management, sort of investment management, mm. and the better way of structuring that. But Effectively, I think we mentored ourselves, but we also were very, very collaborative and love partnerships. So we yeah. learned off suppliers, we learned off freelancers. Yeah. They all bring something to the party. Mm. And pretending otherwise, I think, is very naive and, and stops you soaking up as a yeah. sponge learnings from all these different people. You can learn from the newest person mm. coming into your business. Mm. They come from a different perspective. They're not institutionalized. Mm. They might have a different view on something with a fresh pair of eyes yeah. as much as someone who's got 25 years of experience. I love learning off youngsters. Well, it makes you feel a bit younger. It does make you feel younger. But I actually learn, <laughs> love learning off youngsters coming oh. in at 18, 20-year-old, 21-year-old, well, teaching you stuff that you're like, wow. Oh, you look at their understanding now of tech and digital and social media and sustainability and diversity and inequality and inclusivity, which, frankly, the industry has a lot to step up and learn yeah. about because there's a lot of, 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 of work to, 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 to grow in that areas. That's normal for them. That mm. That's sort of what they are used to and expect from an employer or an employee uh, perspective so that's a really interesting in, in, insight whereas perhaps you can teach them a bit more experience with them more the commercial side and then the brands element and combining that creates a really exciting hub of current relevant authentic mm. experiences mm. where's your where's your hq based we're in hartford in okay. hertfordshire we've been there we bought the premises in 2000 and Seven, um, Matt, 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 and I, um, and yeah, we've 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 basically been there. We've got about twenty three, twenty four thousand square foot of, of offices and and warehouse space with the kit and the set construction. We've been there ever since. We did have an office in London, but we sort of decided to get yeah. rid of that last year. Yeah, obviously, yeah, obviously yeah. we'll probably go back again. Yeah, yeah so yeah. so you build up, broke the back twenty thirteen. What year did you decide that you want to sell majority stake in the business? I think Matt and I. As everyone, it comes to a personal journey. Yeah. You know, I've got three children, three daughters and a wife, which isn't cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, Matt was just starting a family as well um, and had a couple of young kids. And I think it gets to the point where 
being very base about it, your, your, your school fees and also your family time and what's all this ultimately. And also, we pretty much had all our eggs in one basket. You know, we didn't have diverse investments everywhere. I mean, we had, we had the property, but that was yeah. a much more longer term thing. And it just felt not only the sort of personal income side and just dive, divest a bit and, and get a bit of cash off the table, but we didn't want to go anywhere. We wanted, we knew there was a lot more yeah. to come from Smile and very probably more exciting now than ever. Yeah. Um, so it was a balance of, of not moving out but staying in. So it was only a 50-odd 1% stake. The management still retained 47, 48%, whatever it is, um, between me, Matt, Dom, and Andrew mainly, yeah. uh, with a few other minor investors. Um, but the ec private equity also brought a, a sort of a sense of perspective on a bigger picture as well. But do private equity really understand your business? This is my the, biggest... Well, that's where you go through a process of, of meeting them and understanding who are more interested in the bottom line on a weekly basis yeah. or who wins from a long-term strategy and let you get on with it yeah. and we picked one that was the latter thankfully yeah. and they didn't understand our business as well as anyone no one ever will yeah. but they wanted to and they showed a real clear empathy and sensitivity to not coming in and running it for us mm. we real, still run our business almost entirely without their input and they took 51 they bought 51 percent. yeah how did that feel for you because this is your baby how did yeah. that feel for you it was emotionally? hard yeah. it was hard but it was the right thing to do um for me and matt at that time we weren't walking away we still felt that we were still running and part of smile but yeah i mean look the money's nice great but you know at the end of the day uh, it, it, it's 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 a means to an end with regards to keeping a sense of proportion to why you work this yeah. hard ultimately for the benefit of your, who your most nearest and dearest are, which mm -hmm. is investing in your family and, and so on. But at the same time, not losing what you love yeah. um, and wanting to make it even better. And mm -hmm. so we had the best of both worlds and that was always what Matt and I wanted. So. What did you build it up to before you sold it? What turnover did you build it up to? So, I mean, we're very fortunate. We were the only agency, I think, in the last three years to be in the Fast Track Sunday Times list consistently. So we were Fast Track 100 in 2018, in the export 200 in 19, and just gone in, in 20. So we went from 19 to 27 to 37, I think, turnover in three years. Mm. to an 37 mil turnover yeah. up until... 2018 2019 2019 when you yeah. sold it sold 51 uh, so 2018 we yeah. sold it so that 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 year of whatever it was 18 our year ends march so yeah up to march 19 fantastic yeah so it was pretty fast pretty fast growth from sort of eight, i think 16 to 27 to 37 38 something like that so that was a pretty fast projection and it wasn't a case of thinking right we've reached the top it yeah. was more a case of this is a good time to sort of take take a certain amount of investment yeah. um, but also to, to, to have a bit of a reboot so you know the, the roles slightly changed yeah. we wanted to have sort of dom and a few others i appointed a new ceo i took a step back to just do three days a week to have a bit more of a strategic role um i wasn't as good as managing people and growth perhaps internally mm. as someone else and some of the other guys were I wasn't particularly operational and i wanted to have someone better than me that could do that while i then looked at industry and strategy yeah. and acquisitions so yeah. It, it, it was, wasn't just about that. It was about also us shaping what was fit for purpose at, at certain levels, role-wise and, and yeah. ambition-wise for the future. So let's roll back three years ago. The day you signed that deal and the money was transferred in your personal account, how did you feel? I felt I deserved it, frankly. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure Matt felt the same and the others. Um, but it wasn't like that was it. It was almost just part of the journey. Did you feel secure for your family the rest of your life at that, at that point? Yeah. 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 What was that feeling like? Emotional. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, remember, I remember sitting uh, after we signed the deal, the night we went out for a few drinks, um, the guys were waiting for me to come back from the private equity office and they were already half cut. And I was sober <laughs> as a judge, um, very half cut. Catch up. And it was a quick catch up. And then, and then they sort of 
because whatever reason they all left and I, I was sort of left my, on my own for about half an hour and I'm sure I cried or I had a big tear in my eye and I was just so drained from yeah. the process because it's not a fun process. Yeah. I was so drained and emotional. I didn't even think about the money. It was more about I've done the right thing for myself, for Matt, the families. Yeah. I've done the right thing for the other guys as yeah. well because we've retained a, a control fish informally anyway mm. if not commercially mm. but we trusted did you keep what they bought 51 percent? yeah but that means they're in control they're in control overridingly of whether they sell the business or not or, or whatever but any decent private equity team that actually care about let you growth, get on with it let us get on with it yeah, because okay. we are the value okay they're not the value they're just the part owners so mm. they don't add any value to the business mm. effectively from a growth perspective, a client perspective, and they're interested in one thing, one thing only, and that yeah. is growth return. Yeah. And who's going to give that? Yeah. The management yeah, team. Yeah, absolutely. So they are very conscious of not upsetting us. They trust us. Yeah. And any there's not one strategic decision, not one deployment of staff or investment mm. or cost that they have not allowed us to do. Yeah. We've discussed it. We've been open and transparent, and we've justified it. And because every time it's justifiable, and we've just got them to understand it rather than agree to it mm. because if they understand it and it's justified then why would they not agree to it yeah. if they trust us managing if that trust goes and we keep on making loads of mistakes yeah. then the trust goes then they're more scrutinizing they get more involved it gets more disruptive yeah. that's never been we see them barely once a month yeah amazing so and that's was there, that, was, that that's what that's that was why i was so reassured about yeah okay i can see that and was when you when you done that deal was there an earn out did they say to you we'll pay you 50 percent up front and 50 percent in three years I won't give you too much details if you don't mind, no, but uh, like with most deals, there is a sense of a certain amount up front and a certain amount over the next couple of years, yep. but it was not purposely fixed to any particular uh, targets. Okay. Um, it was just a staggered process so that we effectively that's very That's business. very trusting of them, isn't it? Um, well, no, and because, trusting of you. Well, not really, because if we left the business, we'd forego the, earn, the, 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 the stage payments. Yeah, but what so, I'm saying is for them, they're saying you've got to hit certain targets. That's what I mean. They were very. They were like, <clears throat> don't, you don't have to hit certain targets. Just carry on what you're doing because well, you're passionate and you're going to make it work. That goes back to my trust and value thing. Yeah. We were still very much in the business. We yeah. still got 50, 48%, 49% of the business. Mm. We still have a massive vested interest to grow it in the same vein. And, and that's the thing. If it's pretty balanced, mm. we've got the same aims and objectives, which mm. is continue growing, investing, and valuing this business to develop the best talent for the best client outputs yeah. for the best client relationships. So so when you sell a, a big, well, you sell 51% of your business now, it's still in your interest that one day that maybe that they want to sell it, that you're still going to get your cut well, from. Then you agree a, a strategy plan, yeah. which we have in place. We have a three to five year plan that we set up in 2018, 19, and we're completely aligned on where we want to get to with what sort of presence, what sort of position, what sort of turnover, what sort of EBIT, what sort of reputation, that may or may not be valuable. Yeah, most private equity firms have a three to five year plan yeah. and that, that met our next ambition, aspiration. Now, mm. just because they sell their state doesn't mean we have to. Yeah. Um, we could then just carry it on to the next next partner owner. Sounds we, like a massive win-win, this deal to me. Well, the interesting thing is that year after we sold, for no particular reason, apart from just a few cyclical and client things, yeah. we actually flatlined for the first yeah. time. Okay. <laughs> um, and you might say that, you know, private equity or whoever else invested would be incredibly worried we didn't meet yeah. our next big target but they got it they we, we'd invested a lot more to facilitate longer term growth we yeah. compromised some profit a few client relationships would matured to the point where we needed to find some new ones yeah, or okay. and there was just intricate two or three specifics rather than just losing clients losing staff losing reputation in yeah. fact all of that happened more but it was just you know you know it's a step yeah it's yeah, never yeah. a smooth no, upward absolutely. curve 
So and and you know and then weirdly then COVID hit. Yeah. So um, good timing. Well, you could say that. <laughs> yeah. But the most exciting thing is all that we've done over the last year, eighteen months, even before the COVID thing, was investing in a longer term growth for the benefit of our internal team and expertise and external client projects. Yeah. And the bearing the fruit of that is being realised already now, and will do for the next couple of years. Which is why we're so uh, excited about a strategy plan still being adhered to yeah. over the longer term. Yeah. So let's let's move on a couple of years. Yeah. You've built up an amazing business. I can see your passion. I can hear your passion. I absolutely love it. You then get to 2018, you sell your business. Wonderful, 51% of it. You get to 2020, COVID hits. Mm. What have you done since, since COVID's hit? Tell me about One Industry, One Voice. Yes, well, um, as I say, I, I had a bit more time on my hands. I have a CEO and a great board that were running the operational side of the business. And I was seeing throughout the summer of 2020, a huge amount of disruption and pain and companies and freelancers losing 90 plus percent of their income. Yeah. And there was a huge amount of brilliant campaigning and lobbying going on across, across business leaders, but particularly associations across what essentially for decades been a very disparate siloed business. And no one can ever define, has been able to define the events industry or even just chop it up into mm. bite size. Isn't that bizarre? It's the just... events industry is massive but no one really knows how what, massive, how massive or, or what it is or any or who, sums yeah, or any numbers no, or how many people no. are being employed. It, it's just the way it's evolved. I mean, it's still a very immature industry. What we are 34 year, year old industry yeah. compared to most in yeah. the, you know, so we've, I basically saw lots of campaigns that were trying to totally rightly lobby government for sector specific support from associations, but coming from their own sectors yeah. with often similar issues, yeah. but using conflicting data, contacting similar or the same people, confusing the hell out of the industry. And there mm. were so many bloody hashtags and all sorts flying yeah. around. Lots of people were sort of saying this is getting mad. Yeah. And and no one really felt that anyone was properly representing them because there's lots of crossovers yeah. with, with certain supply chains. So I, I basically got together with um, Mash Media, organized a little forum. And, yeah. and a day before I'd had a chat with the editor and said, look, I've got an idea of this thing called One Industry, One Voice, which does what it says on the tin, mm. where we just act as a conduit where um, defining straight away the seven sectors, you know, business and corporate, uh, business and consumer events, music, outdoor and festivals, weddings, big part of the industry, which no one really recognized before, mm. ex um, culture and charity events, sports activations, mm. and so on. So seven main sectors got together, mm. the, some of the leaders, some of the associations, and just talked, yeah. which had never done before collectively. Amazing. There'd been pockets here Amazing. and there. And just swap mm. ideas and campaign strategies so they didn't bump into each other. They shared a bit of data mm. that was consolidated. And they come together. And just work. So you effectively had representatives, key leaders and the company ski associations that are, you know, effectively have the expertise of lobbying. We were just, we're not lobbying, we're just a positive conduit of, of relationships and partnerships and networking so that when they were going to do stuff, were they targeting the same people? Yeah. Were they using the same data? Did they have the same challenges? And, you know, throw a spear yeah. rather than toothpicks. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, I reached out to as many people as I knew. And from that came more and more people like yourself, Dodge, yeah. who I've never met before yeah. till today, yeah. Yeah. physically, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. even though we've been speaking for almost yeah. a year. Yeah. And and other people in the festival industry, the weddings industry, the exhibitions, the music, the outdoor, the charity sector as well, which is very important. And just got them to, to learn from each other, respect each other as well. Mm. And then we defined simple data. Mm. 84 billion is the contribution GDP to this industry, divided up on So that's by 84 billion pounds brought into our economy. GDP contribution. Wow. Yeah. And that's across, and, and we had the individual numbers pretty yeah. much. We knew weddings did that there were 14.7, yeah. and exhibitions knew there were six or seven, and business knew there was, you know, sort of 13, 14, yeah. or plus the exhibitions 20, yeah. and music knew there were this. But they didn't know the definitive others 
and they didn't know whether we'd have duplication, so we had to sort of spread yeah. that out because obviously yeah. there's shared revenue. And then you've got the employment numbers of 1.5 event professionals, which again, individually- 1.5 yeah, no one knew that. 750 in the business side, 750 in the consumer side. But again, individual sectors and associations had numbers, but no one had quite, so if you're gonna talk to the media, talk to the industry internally, yeah, yeah. or talk to the government for the campaigning guys, yeah. they need some sort of demonstration yeah. of, you gotta take us seriously Give some now. stats, give but, us some facts. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that, that, was, that was the, you know, so it was about, it was about, it was about respect for each other, collaboration, understanding, and some form of legacy, positive legacy mm. that might come out of this. And on the back of that, I also said to all these supporters, supporters, would you fund a positive campaign to balance the lobbying, just to shout about the power of events, yeah. the positive side of events. Mm. And we created something called We Create Experiences, which was simply three messages. Demonstrate the expertise we have globally with a UK events industry, the best in the world, yeah. best in the world creatively, quality-wise, yeah. and so on. The range of expertise we have, the range of genres we work yeah. in. Showcase that. Showcase the fact that we can do events that, that inspire, that celebrate, that support society, mm. that grow businesses. Mm. Um, you know, and 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 that's encompassing millions of people's lives every day and you know millions of people attend events and then the third thing was reassuring them with because of that expertise we can deliver safely as and when we're allowed to because yeah. we are experts in that it's yeah. another layer of problem solving we're problem solvers yeah. Yeah. so we created we create experiences we got a 70 grand raise to fund a pr company we did a b2b activation in december that got a huge amount of coverage across regional national we got loads of celebrities involved and we got to the b2c one a few weeks ago to the consumer market yeah. so business events first than consumer a few weeks ago. Um, and, you know, we, we had uh, so many celebrities involved, as you've seen the videos yeah. on, on the websites and stuff. Who, who, who got involved? Oh, we had Claire Balding narrate the video. We had Claudia Winkleman. We had Harvey Goldsmith. We had um, uh, Tim Peake. We had David Coulthard, Alistair Brownlee. Um, we had Poppy Delavine. Um, we had um, people like Melvin Benn doing pieces to camera. Yourself, Dodge, mm. did some some mm. regional and TV work, and there was radio work done. We had most of the regionals covered. We had all the four nations covered yeah. as well, which is yeah. really important to us. So we had um, the Scotland covered, and we had Wales covered. We had Northern Ireland covered, and lots of different regions in you know from welcome Yorkshire down to yourself yeah. on the south coast yeah. to the Boardmasters guy in yeah. the West Country, and um, and so on. And it was really important that we had that but both England regional, but also Four Nations representation, married with all the different celebrities, giving their little 15 pieces yeah. seconds to camera saying, the power of events I'm yeah. most looking forward to, it's good for our well-being. Yeah. Marry that into some content, some really inspiring content of all these different genres yeah. and put that in a one and a half minute thing, yeah. bang, Boom. that is what we're yeah. about. Yeah. No one can say that wasn't a positive message and doesn't inspire them. And what the hell now more than ever do we need to look forward to for yeah. our physical and health yeah. and our mental well-being? Let me hold you there. Yeah, man. I've got huge respect for you. Oh, bless you. I really, I'm not just saying, I've got huge respect watching what you've done this past year when pandemic has hit. Mm. It's been absolutely amazing. And you have been nonstop. You've been like a dog with a slipper. Yeah. And I've seen it on the news. I've seen it everywhere. I've seen it yeah. over the press. I've seen, you've just pulled the whole nation together of event organizing, sports and weddings and did it. It's a start. I, I have say it's to, the whole No, no, but, but, I've got, but yeah. I've, I have to take my hat off to you oh, because there's you. not many people who do that for free. Yeah, for free. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get that out there because yeah. I, you know a lot of people have seen your face on telly everywhere. You've been doing this for yeah. free to bring the country together yeah. to get this events industry to come back stronger 
Yeah, I'm, I'll just be clear on that. There's a, there's a quite. And there's a great team. team don't there's, get yeah, me wrong, Simon, but you're heading. You're heading this up. Well, I've I founded it and I've done a lot of the back work. Yeah. Simon purposefully was the leader at the head of the BVP because it wasn't the Rick Stainton or the BVP? Smile Show Business Visit Events Partnership. Yep. Pretty much covers about a third to a half of, of of a sort of conglomerate of associations that have 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 worked together before, and he heads that up. So he had as good an understanding of the wider industry as anyone. What's his name? Simon Hughes. Mm. So he purposely was put by me, appointed as the lead of it. I've done no press interviews externally. On, mm. on, when you say TV, I think probably you mean the industry. Industry. So TV, I, yeah. I was galvanizing a lot of the industry stuff internally, but purposely I'd never did any external press or any mention of Smile or myself. That was always done by other people around the industry, like yourself yeah. or Melbourne or Harvey yeah. or people from sport and so on. So that helped probably my competitors in the wide industry realize it wasn't about one agency, one type yeah. of sector. It was about- It wasn't them, smile trying to take the attention. This was you doing good no, and, and bringing people together. I, I just felt I had an opportunity and the time and the resource and some contacts and I took a punt and I don't have massive fear of failure. And I think that's, you know, especially in these times. And it was it seemed like the right thing to do. And when hundreds of businesses and business leaders that are both uh, more experienced than me and from different sectors and associations, 90% of what I've never even met said, go for it. We 100% need yeah. that. I mean, we had 99.9% buy-in within yeah. weeks. Yeah. I thought, well, then there's something in this. Yeah. And they all gave hundreds, if not thousands of pounds towards this fund. Competitors, people I'd never met, suppliers, venues, hotel chains, um, you know, people from music and sport. And, and, and then the celebrities all got on board. We had 45, 50 celebrities in total across the videos. Mm. Something was needed. Yeah. And I just happened to spark it over a glass of red wine. But there's a lot of other people. That's where all the, the best ideas come from. Well, yeah, exactly. Red um, wine or rum. Well, there we go. <laughs> well, that's the next podcast, <laughs> I understand. Midnight in Midnight. Barbados. So, yeah, look, there's a lot of work being done. There's yeah. a lot of, ultimately, what's happened is we've started something where we don't have the whole industry, we yeah. don't have the whole country, but we've got a really interesting legacy, perhaps, to build on if people still want that to happen. Mm. And I think certainly a lot of associations and a lot of business leaders and a lot of freelancers and others who have needed something to buy into positively yeah. and also share and collaborate more which is the community is so important yeah. and the legacy of the pandemic has taught us that is that learning and sharing have more respect when you've got similar issues challenges or opportunities positively mm. it can only be a positive thing mm. so if i've started something like that that might have a longer term legacy that's that's the thing that matters to me you've done something unbelievable there we have a responsibility as industry leaders when we've done what we've done when we have the ability to do it the resource whatever the time perhaps the mindset yeah. to get this industry into a better place than when we started yeah. in it and to leave a legacy of opportunity for the next generation and if there is anything that we have responsibility to do as business leaders um that's got to be the optimum now it's easy to say very hard to do but from what you're doing with you know eventful entrepreneur yeah. this podcast and your work and that with the next generation is exemplary and i which is why i drove three hours to come down yeah. and do this Thank for you, you. Very much. no 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 it's an yeah. absolute pleasure yeah. and it's an honor to be part of it because yeah. i know you've had more a lot more high profile people than me mm -hmm. involved um but again one is for one voice is all about the same thing if only we have a better fit for purpose industry that's more respected understood and invested in yeah. it can only attract more global talent and UK talent to the industry, yeah. which means we become even more yeah. uh, proficient and creative as a UK events yeah. industry if we collaborate and learn from each other more. And you know, we did a recent survey a few month, a few weeks ago on our sixth month review, and we asked just people across the supporters, you know, does Ronson Voice have anywhere to do? Does it have anything more to do um, longer term? Mm -hmm. And you know, I think it was 75, 80% said wholeheartedly yes, and many of them prompted to put their names down if you'd like yeah. to be part of a collaborative view task force yeah. to, to devise it's what got that might serious be. legs that's got serious legs well long way to go but at least 
we haven't disrupted the industry, upset yeah. people. We haven't misrepresented them. Yeah. Positive messaging was ticked, and you know uh, it's a starting point. And if people feel that that's a positive way of helping not only the existing generation that have been through so much hell in the last year, yeah. but also the next generation where we have a wider understanding of our industry, it can only give them more opportunity mm. of where they can work and yeah. cross 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 pollinate. But that next day, generation is the reasons why we set up the new business called the event crowd. Yeah. You know, the online events course. Yeah. You know, this is to teach the next generation what you need to know today yeah. in the events industry. Yeah. This isn't going to university and doing an event management degree for three years and leaving fifty thousand pounds of debt being taught from a lecturer from reading from a book 20 years ago, we're bringing in people like yourself and 30 yeah. of the industry experts teaching what you need yeah. to know today. Yeah. Because there's a belief out there that you've got to get a degree to get into the events industry. And yeah. you don't. No. You no. know, and, there, and there are many paths and there this are is many, a great one. many paths yeah. and, and we're super excited yeah. to launch that. Good on you. Well, well yeah. you know, I'm not I'm not here to I wouldn't say that university um, event degrees aren't a good idea. But you know what? There are other ways of doing it and better ways of doing it if you've got the opportunity to do so. And I think what you're doing is certainly a great alternative conduit if you want to accelerate certain things accelerate. and not have that three-year experience. Yeah. But the experience is amazing at uni. We all went to uni. It was the best experience you can yeah, ever and have. And it's right for some people. Party it's not right sport, for others. Fun. But what I'm saying is, is that they have to spend £27,000 on tuition fees over three years yeah. and they leave £50,000 in debt yeah. before they get their first yeah. job. And that's not all inclusive. What, Some people can't afford that, right? Well, that's stuck around your neck for the next 30, yeah. 40 years. That's the bit that I don't understand and that's the bit yeah. I think we're going to problem solve. Yeah. No, I hope so yeah. and I wish you all that. I think, yeah. you know, one of the reasons I came down here was because I've got a massive belief I said to you at the beginning, yeah. my, my, my first employee at 19 is now our MD and a, and a shareholder and running most of the business. Amazing. And that's because I invested in someone with the right attitude. And you're offering that opportunity to, to hundreds, if not thousands of people. Absolutely. And I think, you know, university degrees have a place for certain people, yeah. but something like what you've created gives a lot of people an alternative, if not a, maybe a better for some of their yeah. situation or a route into the industry in yeah. an accelerated way. And, and good on you, mate. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for yeah. you for doing that. Good man. And, um, you know, if 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 means we get the better talent, that if kick That's us the old, key. kick us old boys up, yeah, the, up exactly. The bum yeah, exactly. And, and basically, but they're the ones just drive us on. If we're bringing young talent through and they've done a, a three month course, a fraction of the price and a fraction of the time as a degree, they're going to push us and make us better. Yeah, I you hope know? so. so it's a yeah, thing. we will need it. Yeah, we'll need it. Anyway, Rick, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I really Cheers. do mean that. And I thank you ever so much for coming all the uh, way down from a, London no, to get no, down to Bournemouth. No, it's here. Easy, love you, Joe. I could listen to you all day long. You're a legend. Oh, bless you. You're well, a gentleman. Take care. Look after yourself. Good man. Good luck Cheers. with it all, yeah? Thank Cheers, you, Rick. Cheers, mate.